all of your stuff up there is just bam all over the floor in pieces and your job now is to just slowly pick it all up again and I quite like that because it didn't seem again overwhelming. Welcome to another episode of the Burnt Chef Journal hosted by myself Chris Hall the founder of the Burnt Chef Project. This week's guest is Harriet Mansell who joins us from her restaurant Robin Wilde in Lyme Regis. Harriet talks to us about her time spent as a sole chef on yachts and what that experience was like for her career and also for her overall well-being. She also talks about her journey to becoming a business owner and how her staff's well-being is at the forefront of everything that she does within the business. Again, very unique perspective on the industry through personal experience that she's very kindly shared with us today. So strap yourselves in and uh, enjoy this week's chat. Lamb Western are your partner in potatoes. We're a leading global frozen potato manufacturing business with a wealth of experience in offering a portfolio of high-end and quality products on a consistent basis. We supply the pub, casual dining, QSR sectors. We believe in well-being free potatoes and we are very proud to support the Burnt Chef Project. Here to offer our support and help for those that need it and any solutions that you need for you and your business. How are you? Good. My um, as I was say, my my sous chef. He's um, yeah. He he was he was actually the first person who told me about you guys. Um, because I hadn't heard of you before. Not well before James joined the team. Like what, like last year, and he had all this burnt mm. chef um, merch. <laughs> um, so um, that that kind of alerted me as to what you were doing, and um, yeah. So yeah, I know what you guys do basically. You know. <laughs> yeah that's good i mean i mean we 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 get a bad rap for pumping out merch but it's you know it's it helps fund the work that we do and also at the same time it helps create awareness is is quite clearly demonstrated so it's a great thing for it's a great thing to hear that people are you know wearing it with pride uh makes me very happy yeah no um he wears he's serious he seriously wears it with pride because he has um yeah he's had quite a lot of um problems along the way so it's actually like that's why it was something that really stuck out stood out to him so yeah fantastic so I mean the whole purpose of this podcast is really is to talk openly about well-being and the subject of mental health but it's also to inspire uh, others to make difference and changes to their life because I think that you know it's quite a sweeping statement and it might not necessarily apply to everyone but in hospitality we tend to have you know we tend to be in our little bubbles and we don't we, we get stuck in a rut sometimes. Um, and I think it's important for other people to hear from life lessons learned, um, to hear, you know, journeys and really, you know, find synergies with that with themselves, but also find messages in it that, that they can then take on and, and use within their own life, really. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I was, Lucy knows a fair bit about, she doesn't know everything, but she knows a fair bit about my background. And I think she knows, certainly why the um talking about mental health is like really um really important to me 
due to personal and work-related reasons, um, obviously the broader understanding of the workplaces that we find ourselves in and the, the pressures of life combined with those workplaces. But um, yeah, I've had so many personal things along the way that have always meant that mental health has been at the forefront of my agenda. For instance, like my brother, he was sectioned for 13 years. Um, and, and that was something that I grew up with. Um, so, you know, I think when I was in my early 20s, I started raising money for Mind, you know, the mental health charity and, and continue with the, the restaurant to do, you know, charitable donations to them and stuff like that. Like they're my mental health or they're my charity of choice. So, yeah, just to kind of make you aware that it is something that's super duper important to me. <laughs> Massively so. And I'd like to explore that a little bit. A little bit more um, a bit later on but I mean before we get going Lucy can you just sort of explain to explain to people who may not have come across you before sort of you know, what your background is and how you came so passionate about the hospitality industry? Okay yeah so yeah my name's Harriet Mansell and um, I grew up in Sidmouth in Devon and um, <clears throat> I, I think the very very early thing the earliest thing that caused me to be really engaged with food was just my friend's dad um who used to make wild garlic soup when I was really young and then we used to host well there's an international school in Sidmouth and we used to host um children from other countries which was quite good for me as a as an only child growing up it meant that there were some faces in the house to talk to um other than my books um it was nice because we had uh it was always girls that would come to stay, for, um, but they would always be from, we had someone from Taiwan, we had someone from Italy, uh, Sweden, um, Hong Kong. So what I'm saying is that we had people from all over the world and they always brought their culinary idea of what home meant to them with them. So from this little Italian girl who taught us how to make a tomato sauce, just a simple one, just blowing my mind at the time. And then uh, uh, we had, you know, a Swiss girl who made a cheese fondue, which yeah, really ignited a, a, a passion for cheese. <laughs> um, but then, you know, beyond then, my first, I was desperate to work. Funny enough, I was listening to Paul Ainsworth's history on his podcast with you, and I <laughs> drew, drew some similarities. Um, yeah, one of my first jobs was when I was 12. I worked in a fruit and veg store locally, and that was just, yeah, pound an hour, desperate to just work but again being exposed to um a greater variety of veggies than perhaps i'd had at home uh remember writing about it, my experiences of work in, a, in an essay at school and i wrote um oh yeah something about a celeriac that i bought home and cooked it like for what well, just roasted it on a sunday lunch with mum and dad and uh, my teacher corrected it and scratched it out and she wrote celery and i was thinking Ooh. <laughs> what amazing <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that was um that you know and then after that I worked in I worked in hospitality throughout my teenage years um you know pr pr some prep in kitchens you know just salads and stuff and other as front of house and then you know I went to a school that was very very um you know grammar school that was very insistent on on the fact that you'd follow a more traditional career path so you know become a doctor or a lawyer and um I couldn't quite decide on what degree I was going to do I didn't know but it, there was only option there was only the option to do a degree so I went and did politics and history it was always quite analytical so I thought that could be quite a good route to go down and then um came out of there you know I think my my family in school were quite pushy about me going and following a career in law so um I ended up doing a few office jobs for a bit in my 
um, you know, straight out of university um, when I was 20 years old and then just realised that office work wasn't for me and ended up going, doing a ski season, um, being exposed to the chef, the chefs out there were just phenomenal and they inspired me to want to do that. And then I went and worked on a super yacht for the first time when I was 21 and I was doing the cooking for the owner uh, before the main chef came on board. Uh, so just in the off season times. And uh, again, it was him that said to me, you're a really fantastic little cook. And I, and I was getting at that time to go to markets in Croatia and places like that and seeing all these ingredients uh, that I'd never seen before. So really it was the ingredients again that were inspiring to me and you know, figuring out what I could do with them. At that point, I'd had no formal training, but I was just enjoying the abundance of whatever was available. And, that, and then I came back to the UK after doing that time abroad and thought, oh, I, I'd really like to be a chef full time and uh, told my parents and they poo-pooed the idea and said, nah, don't bother. You'll never earn any money and you'll always work really long hours. And um, they were to some extent correct <laughs> um, but actually that yeah. doesn't <laughs> that doesn't deter you when you figure out what it is that you love I realized at that moment that was my passion um and yeah threw myself full-on into chefing and um went and took a job at Hicks Hicks's uh Champagne and Oyster Bar and Selfridges. But I first went to meet yep. Mark at the tram shed and I walked in for this interview. Um, and he was there with his exec chef, Kevin Bratton. And I said, oh, hi. And he was like, oh, are you here for a front of house job? And I was all like kind of wide eyed and bushy tailed. And I said, I'm not, in, not in a, you know, not in a, it's not, no, I'm not calling him up on anything like that. You know, he was being absolutely lovely. It's just I kind of came up all jauntily and <laughs> didn't look anything like anything. <laughs> I should have been looking like and um he said oh and I said oh no no I want a job in the kitchen <laughs> and he was like right okay and I said well I'm actually thinking about going to culinary school <laughs> all sparky and stuff and uh, he said no don't bother just work in you know well you could but you could also we could train you up and so I did I took a job in you know just trying it out in um in Selfridges and um it was just during that time that I was there as commie chef that I just thought, oh, this is great. But I definitely, you know, having had that experience on the yachts and I thought the yachts is where I can earn money. And at that time I was looking into yacht jobs for the future. I found out that if I wanted to get a yacht job, you know, in five years time, that I would need to um, get formal education because that's just a requirement for that. So I just went to cookery school. And then after cookery school, I went and interned out at Noma and, and I tried out a couple of the kitchens back in London. I tried out dinner by Heston. Um, I only worked there for a month. It wasn't really my cup of tea. Um, and then I went over to Hedonay and I, I did that for a little bit. But I, again, it really wasn't my cup of tea either. Uh, the hours were brutal. You know, I was getting into work at <laughs> six in the morning and on, on increasingly throughout the week, you know, you'd be home at two, three, four, five o'clock, sometimes 6 a.m. on a Saturday, you know, and you're just... I don't know, not possible. So I just went off, um, went off uh, working on, on, on the super yachts. And I was very fortunate that I landed into really good positions that enabled me to progress my career on that super yachts at that time, which is what enabled me to save some money. So I took a job as sous chef on a motor yacht called Cloud9 uh, with uh, a Michelin star chef. Well, he previously had gained a Michelin star um, at a restaurant in Winchester. And so he took me under his wing, showed me everything about the boating world. And then I moved on to Soul Chef on a 50 meter working for private clients. And then I moved to um, 
sole chef on a sailing yacht working for the Murdoch family. Um, uh, the couple of boats in between as well. Oh, I worked for the Qatari royal family in the Seychelles on their 60 meter motor yacht, which was a diving vessel, which was amazing. Um, so, yeah, worked for quite a few wealthy, <laughs> extremely wealthy families for a bit. Um, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, along, along the way there, um, yeah. And, and then, um, and then I, I saved up some money obviously from doing that and, um, well, various things happened over the years, but, um, I then ended up, you know, ultimately coming back to this part of the world, but I suppose we might touch on this a little bit. I, I took a little bit of time out of, of, the, of cooking to go and do a yoga teacher training, um, for my sanity. <laughs> so yeah, that's my story. And then I went in. Moved back to the southwest. I found a location in Lyme Regis called the Pop-Up Kitchen. I went and started doing a pop-up called Robin Wild. That was a couple of years ago. And then um, gained a bit of a following locally and was able to find some permanent premises. Put in a planning application. Um, well, started it the year before last. It finally came through last July. Did a refurbishment. Opened the doors to the restaurant on the 28th of October. Swiftly got shut down. Um, reopened for December. Got shut down again. And here we find ourselves. Uh, but we've also got some big, exciting plans that we're working on at the moment um, to open up a little wine bar as well. So, yeah, kept ourselves busy. That's, um, I mean, I don't know where to begin. Like, you've managed to summarise, like, multiple lifetimes worth of experience in the best part of seven minutes. So, firstly, well done, Harriet. That's that's impressive. Um, I, um, I, I, I mean, obviously, you've got, a, you, you've got a wealth of experience and you sound incredibly driven to you know, throw yourself into these situations, especially with limited experience or exposure to this industry. So, you know, that that I'm incredibly intrigued, intrigued about. But also, I'm very interested to learn more a little bit about your journeys on the yachts, because I've spoken to quite a few yacht chefs who have said that it can be at times a very solitary and sort of lonely, lonely life. Um, other than your crew, you, you don't see many other people from, from great deals of time and you can be under quite a lot of pressure depending on who who you're catering for I mean what was your experiences of that yes well as I, I, I quite often worked as a sole chef and so you're the only person in, in your galley and uh, there's quite a, an intense amount of work to do um, you know, there's no one to turn to to do to do the work there's no brigade so you are solely responsible to cook for uh, 15 crew for three meals a day plus snacks when they need them um, up to 12 guests uh, who expect essentially six star you know uh, service they can have whatever in whatever meal they want at whatever time of day they want if it's 3 30 in the morning then you know there's only one person who's making that food for them if it's burger and chips it's burger and chips if it's foie gras and caviar and something like that you know that's what it is and the whole point is that they can eat whatever they want. So being quite, you have to be very versatile and diverse and essentially be a bit of a jack of all trades. You need to have um, experience in, 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 in world cuisine and, and pastry uh, and, and, and fiddly things. You can't just uh, pigeonhole yourself into a certain style. You have to be very dynamic and, and willing to learn and, and think on your feet. And then on top of that, there is the fact that you are living in really close confines with your crew, who are your family. And like any family, there are problems. Uh, I have been, <laughs> I found out recently that my mother is <laughs> quite obsessed with watching Below Deck. <laughs> I hadn't actually watched it before. 
I saw an episode the other day, and it is quite lo- quite a lot like that. Uh, people argue, they bicker, and there's no getting getting out of there. There's no going home at the end of the day because you're in a bunk bed. And if you if your chief engineer says something that's highly inflammatory to one of the stewardesses, and World War Three erupts. That's just something that someone has to mediate and deal with. And, you know, there's no mutiny on board the boats. You just have to put up and put up and really focus on what's important, which is hospitality and making sure that those guests who are paying potentially, you know, upwards of £500,000 a week for the boat alone, and that doesn't even include the cost of fueling up, that could be another 150,000. Um, that doesn't include the cost of food. You know, this is serious, serious money that these guests are paying to to be on that boat. So it's absolute utmost professionalism at all times. Um, and, and then sometimes you have guests who are challenging in their own right because you're not quite sure there's different cultural barriers. And I you know, e.g. the Qataris, they have a different set of what's acceptable and what isn't. So there are times where you are dealing with things that you don't really know about and uh, potentially crossing the boundaries of the workplace environment. And you suddenly go, oh, these, these, this is quite, a, this is quite a turbulent position that I'm in. And you just have to work your way through it. But the hardest thing is that you actually can't escape that environment. So I found that working on boats, for me, it really, um, it was very, very challenging. And you have to work a lot on your sense of self, keeping yourself centred in order to essentially survive in that environment. But what that experience has taught me is huge amounts about myself and how I respond in certain situations and how to essentially um, deal with like conflicting emotions and, and all the rest of it, which which is really difficult um, when you're in that environment. So it put me in really good stead now looking back on it. But yeah. Crikey. I mean, did you ever expect it to be like it was or did you sort of go on, bright, as you say, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and sort of walk in and go, oh, yeah, this should be, you know, this should be a laugh and, and then just wallop. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100% naive. Um, but you know, it's 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 the same as anything. It's a pendulum, and it swings. And one one well, for for months on end, it can be really brutal. You're not getting a day off, let alone a full night's sleep, and that really takes its toll on on your body physically and therefore emotionally. But um, you know, other times you've got free time in some of the most amazing places in the world, and I've had some phenomenal experiences, such as the you know diving in the Seychelles and exploring like random little islands in the Caribbean and going to amazing waterfalls and finding you know food again food new ingredients that you've never experienced before you're exposed to a you know a vaster array of cultures than uh, you know you would have been but if you were in in a kitchen with no light and that was my driving force to do to do yachting it was to see more and to learn more in that way so I had my eyes open because personally that's that's what I needed and that's what I wanted to see. So, yeah, yeah. But you have to look at both sides of the coin. Definitely. And from more of a personal standpoint of view, that um, I've worked for food wholesalers, especially fresh food wholesalers now for about 10 years, up until I started the Burnt Chef Project. 
And so for me, I'm very intrigued. What was your favorite ingredient, your favorite exotic or like alien ingredient that you'd found on your travels? <laughs> I don't know about favorite exotic or alien, but I remember just in the Car- in Antigua, there was um, just using conch, you know, which is just this type of clam. Uh, it's like a whelk in its consistency you know it's it's something that takes a lot of tenderizing and and the, the ladies in the market were just like bashing it out every single day you know because conch fritters are a huge thing down in the caribbean you know it's it's really popular and i remember i cooked these conch fritters or my version on them for a competition i was in down there and this local chef who was on the judging panel came along and he said to me no, not many people can do a good conch fritter, so I'm going to be very dubious about yours. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool, fair play. <laughs> um, and obviously the outcome, like otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it. No, I would be talking about it. Uh, the outcome was positive. He gave me a positive feedback on my conch fritters. But no, it was just that idea that you have to work with something in a certain way that you've never experienced before, and it's trial and error, and it's using your intuition with something that looks alien and foreign and going, okay, well, my training as a chef and everything I know, I'm going to apply that to this situation and try to make something tasty. And that's the kind of thrill that you get when you succeed in making something tasty. So, yeah. That's, that is amazing. I, I love that. And so overall, the experience of working on boats, would you recommend it to people? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I would say think about it long and hard before you go and do it because actually it's it's wise to walk into something with an awareness don't just watch below deck which is you know the hype of the moment and think oh it's going to be all kind of glitzy and glamorous and I'm going to have my makeup on all the time you're not you're going to have to put your makeup on and look nice in front of the guests but behind the scenes you are probably going to be exhausted but everything in life that's rewarding is hard work so if you have the right work ethic and you want to throw yourself at something and you're prepared to sacrifice a home life you're prepared to sacrifice living in one place uh, you know then it might be for you because you do develop such close friendships with your uh, co-workers with your crew it's the same as in a, in a kitchen it's the same as your workplace you know you develop that camaraderie and you have to work together to achieve a goal and part of achieving that goal transcends just the idea of physical labor you are there to support one another through your ups and your downs and this is why i think the topic of mental health is particularly important because the nuances of what you're going to experience on a boat or in any walk of life um, are going to vary but being part of an open discussion about those things is important basically i would say if you're going to go and work on a boat you need to mentally prepare yourself for the fact that it'll probably be very difficult but fun but i think i think i mean you summarized it beautifully and i think that anyone that is listening to this and we and we get a lot of college students listening to this as well i think will be um certainly more more aware of what they could be walking into so thank you thank you for that um and it's a nice segue really you've mentioned mental health i mean what does the subject of mental health mean to you mental health uh, means a lot to me because i i think you know we all have family members or friends who have or ourselves who've experienced um something that's difficult or that has flagged something to our awareness um and I think throughout my life, I've, I've experienced firsthand um, the impact of all of those things. My brother, he was sectioned due to mental illness for 13 years, and he's still in a halfway house um, battling with that. So from a young age, I was aware of this idea that, you know, there were hardships, um, you know, from 
friend, you know, friend who committed suicide uh, due to mental illness, uh, also highlighted that to me when I was at a young age. Um, and over the years, I think relationships with my friends who are chefs, um, you know, I've seen firsthand uh, the the widespread destruction that addiction can cause as well. And addiction is a way of uh, sugarcoating reality and dealing with reality and mental health problems. And then the addiction becomes uh, the thing that is has the power to uh, affect the, pe- the people who are around that person. Um, so to, to me, mental health is incredibly important. Um, my colleague, and Elena, and myself, um, we are both quite well versed in things that have happened to us and our friends. So I think I'll probably go back a little bit and just explain a couple of things that have maybe happened to me that are quite important as well, that personally quite important, because that might lead me on to explaining why my business is the way that it is. Um, so first of all, I think I think this is potentially a bit of a taboo area because I haven't heard anyone else talk about this and I wasn't sure whether to talk to you about it today. Um, but it's funny because actually two female chefs who I'm close with and I've had this conversation quite recently and that's that uh, we, all three of us have acknowledged that at some point in our life we've had an eating disorder. And I think this is part of the broader pressures of the society that we live in. And I think it's highly unusual for a, a chef to acknowledge someone who's completely passionate about ingredients and food to acknowledge, yes, but I think I had an eating disorder. So, you know, I would say that before I made the move to full time become a chef, which was in my, you know, in my early 20s, I, you know, was a product of the society that we live in and um, available, you know, the internet and then societal pressures and so on. I, I calorie counted very heavily when I was 20, 21 years old. It was actually the kind of acknowledgement that I was passionate about food and flavor and ingredients. And the, mo- the moment that I full time stepped to becoming a chef at that point, that was the end of that. You know, there's been no looking back. But it's funny because I have I've spoken to two other female chefs very recently who who've said exactly the same thing. And that conversation has only been coaxed out of us by agreeing that we're going to be having this very transparent conversation about troubles in our lives and actually I think the lockdown is also something that caused us to talk about this recently because the lockdown has removed the day-to-day activities of people and it has it has kind of opened up a, a bit of a gap for anxieties and things that otherwise wouldn't be there to rise to the surface um so so for me I came into chefing with that background of knowing that that you know was something something that was there um Moving forward, I think you know in my career there were there were I've just mentioned on the yachts there were workplace scenarios that I found very very stressful and that caused me to slip into what I would term as a depression and I would say that you know I've worked very hard over the years to temper that and I know the triggers and I can feel it coming on now but that's because I spent an awful lot of time looking and reflecting and soul searching and there was a pivotal moment for me and it was a few it was a few years back and here's one of the downsides of yachting for you. I was in Antigua and I had my drink spiked um, and I woke up with broken fingers and bruises everywhere. I don't think anything bad happened, but I 100% just 
had my hand fixed, which was obviously pivotal to being a chef and had to take about six weeks of work and then I came back. But, you know, you bury, you bury those things. Personal matters when you're working in an intense environment get pushed to one side. You bury your head in the sand and you replace thoughts of something that was difficult with just keeping going. So it wasn't until about a year later that essentially I had a bit of a, not a breakdown, but a moment where I just kind of thought I can't work. I've got to take some time out. And that was what led me to go and um, do a lot of yoga in, um, and then do a yoga teacher training because I realized at that point how much things like mind- mindfulness and meditation and the, the movement and the breath work um, had, had such an impact on me. And I decided that becoming a yoga teacher, not to ever teach yoga, but just to further my understanding of something that was going to have such a pivotal effect on, uh, on my own um, sense of self, uh, was was going to be that thing and, and spend taking that time to re- to reflect which I understand that taking time to reflect is a privilege um but I, I've worked for, for hard for years to save up this money to just afford myself that luxury of going okay I don't have to work for a few months I can live um but it was at that period of time of, of much much deeper soul searching and journaling and um trying to figure out how how I, I tick and, and then realizing you know the, the broader dream to come back to the UK to, to to throw everything that I have into setting up a restaurant here but, but that period of time was so pivotal to me in terms of understanding you know workplace difficulties and and how I would want to see a workplace moving forward because when you work when you chef when you work in hospitality it's because you're passionate about it a lot of the time and it's because you live and breathe that and you know people who Chefs who are passionate, you know, front of house people who are passionate, they commit that level of their time to that thing that they're passionate about. But uh, along the way, they possibly don't take care of themselves. So I have, um, I've been spending a lot of time with my colleague Elena on how we, we have this opportunity to create a business that's a really empowering place to work for the people who work within it. So, you know, we've spent quite quite a long time working out our core values as a business and how we translate those to how we move forward and also who comes to work in the business and then how we nurture those people. So I feel like I'm going to go off on a lot of different tangents here. But basically, um, we, Elena and myself, we have daily, very open, very transparent conversations about essentially our wellness and our our mental health because it's an important thing to be constantly checking in with each other in, in on. And we make it clear to our colleagues that that, again, is something that is, you know, open. It's, it's not that we, you know, encourage oversharing, but actually we do encourage this very open discussion of what's going on and why people are here and how they are here. Uh, I mentioned and uh, I have a chef working for me who's um, who's yeah he's really suffered with mental health issues in the past and we we make a point of uh, having an open discussion on these things um, moving forward we want wellness to be at the forefront of our little corner of hospitality it's difficult of course because of the hours that you've put into the industry but you know, as with a lot of the rest of the industry, we're trying to manage those so that, you know, there's an even, there's a fair distribution of, so that people aren't overworked, so that people are giving their best and, you know, they're there long term. So, you know, in the future, we will be doing things like regular yoga available for our employees. I did actually, I noticed during lockdown and I participated, Alex Head from the Social Pantry, she arranged um, 
yoga for her employees and she extended it to the rest of the industry and you know think things like that are so important because it just takes one person to share an initiative like yourself and the ripple effect can be absolutely huge because what it does is it sparks a discussion and it goes okay well people need to learn how to manage themselves how do they learn well if we provide them with an opportunity to do that so i know that i I've spent, as I said, a long, I've spent a lot of time looking and, and reflecting. And, and I think, you know, some people have done that and other people haven't. But providing a space which nurtures those things is is so important. Um, in the world that we live in, there is, yeah, I think the situation is changing. Things are shifting. The dialogue's changing. Again, thanks to people like yourself who are saying, break the taboo, let's talk about this. And that's exactly what we want to encourage, um, you know, accepting things and talking about them so yeah um <laughs> to answer your question in a really long-winded way um mental health in my own words is incredibly important to me and my colleagues thank you and i'd like to come back to a couple of those points if i may as well i mean one thing that I, one thing that i found very interesting was you said about how working in this trade you tend to have to push personal matters down to one side in order to be able to get on and do your job because you don't have time to assimilate the the information, whether that's trauma or whether that's financial distress or what, whatever that might be. I mean, I'm starting, I was, because people work in hospitality generally tend to have a passion for hospitality, right? You, you fall in love with the service, you fall in love with the food, you fall in love with the ingredients, whatever it might be, but generally speaking, in the same way that I'm still here in hospitality as now is because I've fallen in love with the industry. Mm. But I think we also have to be acutely aware that also on the back of that, that loving something else so intensely can often mean that we end up not loving ourselves enough. And that for me is quite profound, I think, because actually we end up giving everything we have to our careers and to our passion, but actually end up neglecting ourselves as a result of that, hey? Yeah, and I think that's why there has to be some kind of uh, there. There has to be a learned structure in in terms of how to deal with that. And I think it's very easy to to talk about what that structure is and what that education involves. It's actually harder to implement it. You know, I think we could we all know that exercise is really good for us. We all know that we need to do that in order to release serotonin and make ourselves feel good. We all know that if we eat well, that that's going to have a really strong impact on our bodies. We also know that that's easier said than done, particularly when we've been running around all day. I know that right now I'm probably about half stone heavier than I am when I'm in service mode <laughs> because I don't eat when I'm working <laughs> because you're tasting all day long. And you, as you know, as everybody knows, when you're tasting food constantly, it reduces your appetite to sit down and eat a plate of sustenance that is going to nourish you. On top of that, if you're in a small kitchen, you know, where you know you push for time and you're trying to do an ambitious menu. <laughs> Who is making that star food? I mean, it's it's yeah, I do feel ashamed sometimes at the food that we've eaten when we're in a rush. And it and that that's a big change that I insist upon moving forward within my business. I mean, we've only we've just gone through the setup phase, but moving forward, you know, we're actually expanding our team and, and one of the the, the, the first jobs that's going out there is is getting somebody on cooking out a healthy staff meal every single day. Yeah, so we, we we know those those things are important for us to do. Um, we know that meditation is proven to help us 
and I'm a big believer in meditation and its impact upon you. It's, but it's just that some days, particularly I, when, when you're running a business and when you're juggling or when you're working at long hours, you know, sometimes sleep is more important. Um, I've learned recently that one of the things that, that I view it as a bit of a life hack, actually. I'm trying to life hack my, like body hack myself into a better way of existence. And I, it's bizarre, but it's discipline is what I'm coming towards. Um, and I'm, I'm only learning this. I'm, I'm, I'm 33, 34 years old, and I'm actually only just starting to learn that a sense of personal discipline is the only way that you can incorporate all of these good things into your life. Because I know, I speak from self-experience, I can go out of kilter quite easily. I can feel myself going out of kilter when something slips, if I'm overworked or tired, or I have been stressed in one area and I haven't compensated. So it's that it's, it's addressing the fact that everything in life is a balance. And then if, if something goes too far in one direction, you have, you have to work to pull it back in the other direction. It's not just going to happen. So my life hack at the moment is on getting up early. And I'm, I'm trying to hack myself into getting up early forever. So I have noticed that when I get up a couple of hours earlier than normal, yes, compromising on sleep, but also shifting the focus at the other end of the day to, to not stay up late, not have that glass of wine, to just get to bed at a decent time, whether you've been in service or whether you haven't, to focus on what the morning can give you, whether that could be going out for a walk or a run or whether it could be a forage or whether it could be collecting something from a market or whether it could simply be just knocking through those emails at that one point in your day and knowing that you've done them and then you don't have to do them again until the next day at that time or knowing that you have done some yoga or you've made yourself a good breakfast whatever it is of value in that moment is is the thing that is actually uh, shifting the focus from me to kind of productivity and therefore a little feeling of smugness about that but then um <laughs> being able to then get on with your day in a slightly better way um I'm, I'm saying that that works for me it might not work for everybody but um it, it, it is a sense of discipline and when I've been setting my alarm at ridiculous o'clock my body does not want to get up <laughs> but no. the thing the feeling of smugness, no, 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 the feeling that, um, the feeling of accomplishment and the sense of, um, you know, that you're working towards something bigger and more exciting um, is is far more valuable. Um, this is particularly important for me right now as we try to grow our business and we expand to take on more and more people into our team. And there's so much that we want to do to look after that team. The people are at the heart of everything. There's no escaping that. And, you know, we... Um, Part of that in terms of this mental health discussion is not just, you know, saying it's a safe space in which to have open dialogue and so on. It's making it obvious that it's that way. And this is, again, why I think, you know, we're really, really, really key on expressing our key and core values to our team and making sure that they are aligned with those things, because that that way we all get the best out of each other. But no, we we do. I think have, we have to encourage one another to do the things that are good for us. And they're not the same for everybody. Um, but the ones I just mentioned before I went off on a bit of a rant about it being the obvious ones, they do require effort to adhere to them. Definitely. I think you've hit the nail on the head as well. Time management and discipline. You know, we, we, we work in an industry where everything is done based on lists and timing. But then ironically, that doesn't give us any time for ourselves. So we almost have to be that extra little like work doesn't stop when you leave. You have to go right. I have 
three hours or two hours or one hour until I go to bed. What do I need to achieve in that time? I need to switch off my phone and have five, 10 minutes of peace and quiet. I need to eat something that's high in nutritional value, you know, not just cram down something that's greasy. And I need to make sure that I'm at least allowing six hours or five hours or eight hours for sleep. But on the other side, as you say, there is 24 hours in a day. You need to sleep for between seven and eight. And I mean, that's a luxury to many people that work in hospitality. But to be able to go, right, well, if there's 24 hours in a day, I might work anywhere between eight to 12 of those a day. So there's still a few extra hours in the day that I can be able to utilize for stuff. And it's perhaps about, again, I always come back to this mise en, this personal mise en place list. You're making yourself a, a mise en place list so that you go, right, at six o'clock, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go for a half an hour walk or I'm going to go for an hour's walk or I'm going to go for running or something like that. And then when I come back at eight o'clock, I'm going to have, you know, this this breakfast and it's going to be you know nutritionally balanced. It's going to have the right level of carbs in it. and I'm going to feed myself. Or alternatively, a workplace like yourselves may open and a little bit earlier and people can take it in turns to cook up a staff breakfast so that actually you've got that communal aspect mm-hmm. as well. But I think that's, that's, that's a very key point. It's about being disciplined and having that time management. To, and it requires energy and it requires a lot of effort to try and change habitual processes, doesn't it, really? It really does take energy and effort. And I think the immediate mental barrier that a lot of people think or a lot of people feel is a very accepted one is that we we get stuck in our ways. We have a fear of change, a resistance to any form of change. It's a lot easier to continue doing the things that we know that solve a temporary problem. And and, and that's probably if you were to go down the addiction route, that that's, that's what I'm referring to there. But what I also mean is like, sometimes, you know, a lot of people they say, Oh, I, I kick back with a glass of wine to relax. And I'm one of those people who love a glass of wine to relax. In crikey, we're opening up a wine bar. I love wine. But I also know <laughs> that wine has a huge detriment to a person. And, and funnily enough, I'm drinking less at this point in my life than, you know, I ever have done before because I think this greater understanding of, the, of shifting that balance, um, the idea that also the idea is just, I think it's finding something else enjoyable that you're not immediately sure that you will find enjoyable because perhaps you haven't done it before. That thing that's more beneficial to you. And it's, it's seeking that enjoyment and then feeling the reward from that thing, you know, I've just mentioned getting up early. Well, actually, getting up early is or earlier to to fit those positive things into my day has become so enjoyable because, yeah, the, the exercise doesn't make you feel good, and it, it, it's it's more of a long term thing. Uh, but yes, finding the enjoyment. But then, so I suppose if exercise is one of the things that you know makes you feel good, I know I'm one of these people. I freak out at the idea of a bloody long run or something like that. I don't want to do it. I'd rather just, uh, you know, take it a little bit more incrementally and just just say, oh, I'm just going to nip out around the block for 10 minutes. And then quite often it ends up being more of a, you know, I don't like to overly commit to something in my mind because then it might become a bit of a mountain. You know, I I know what I'm like. If, If I make something into a mountain, then I just won't do it. And that happens with exercise. It happens with work. I have to look at things in very manageable it's like GCSE bite-sized chunks. I don't know why I always remember that phrase. But you have to look at things <laughs> in bite-sized chunks and just um, and make it manageable for yourself. So, yeah, if, 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 if your exercise is going out for a lush walk, and, 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 and this is where I think foraging, and, well, I love it because for me it's so valuable. Again, it's 
finding new things at different times of the year. It's just the most exciting thing you can ever do. But going out doing that as a chef is mega because you're scrabbling around, um, exercising, getting fresh air. It's also completely meditative because you're completely and utterly focused on the task at hand. So that's, I mean, that's just something that you love doing that happens to be amazing. So when you find those things that are part of your passion that make you feel good, I think make more time for those things. Like as a, as a business owner and chef, it's that's really difficult for me because I know that I don't have enough hours in my day to do all the things that I want to do. But what we've started doing is putting in our we've been we've been very methodical, very methodical about diarising everything, you know, down to down to the hour, you know, or an afternoon. So an afternoon a week now I'm spending with one of my new chefs. We're doing recipe development, but we go out foraging together. I really don't have the time technically to forage right now, but I have to make the time to do it. And there, there, therefore, like you reap the rewards from doing it as well. And yeah, it's basically discipline. You're right. Rambled on again. It's discipline. No, I, I think you make some very, really valuable points. Like it, it's, and it is that sacrifice sometimes as well, especially if you are, you know, if you've got mounting tasks mounting up and you think to yourself, oh, I could do without doing this for half an hour. But sometimes by doing that thing that you didn't want to do, such as you know, exercise or foraging or some taking time for yourself, it actually makes you more efficient and it allows things to really be in perspective. So it improves your efficiency moving forward as well. So sometimes it's one step forward for what th- one step back for three steps forward, isn't it really? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think also um, developing that sense of personal awareness, like what works for another person might not work for you. You know, I know that I can't send emails at night because my brain just isn't up for it. You know, I could I could reply saying, yeah, OK, see you tomorrow. But I couldn't send a detailed, you know, financial proposal at night. I would have to wake up in the morning when my brain is rested and when I can actually like proofread something, when I can actually, you know, pay that, give that attention to detail that I need to do. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, I think it's understanding yourself and when you're going to get the most out of yourself and when it's right to say, oh, okay, I've still got a load of stuff to do, but actually um, I'm, I'm not going to do it now. I'm going to rest. Yeah. Yeah, being disciplined. I think there's a, there's, a, there's a module in that and also at some stage as well. I keep, I keep coming back to this because I've been on a few foraging courses myself. I love them and I think that eventually at some stage I'd like to host a, a, a Burnt Chef foraging course, you know, because I know um, there's a chap near you called John, John who used to, well, he's called London Forage. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, and we went down Portland and did some foraging for like, you know, sea kelp and sea beets and sea carrots and all this stuff that I didn't even realise existed and sea purslane. And I loved it. We were outside for an entire day. We got absolutely pissed on by the rain. But you are outside in nature, which is something that the Japanese prescribe if you're depressed. You know, you, you get prescribed nature. Yeah. You're in a community of like-minded individuals so you feel like you're you belong and also you're growing your mind as well like you're you're learning new things i think those i mean as a prescription there we go if if someone is struggling with their mental health go foraging i think i think that will generally it will make you feel better i think it will if you can yeah like you say the, the community and the connection aspects are so key um yeah, creativity, exposure to new things, it triggers it triggers your brain in, in ways that nothing else is going to do. So yeah, from a mental health perspective, 
totally. I absolutely agree with you. In terms of, you talk, I mean, a lot of the conversation is sort of geared around an underlying theme. And that's that theme, correct me if I'm wrong, is self-awareness and becoming quite aware of your, yourself. I mean, what, how or when did you feel that you became self, first self-aware and what sort of things did you do in order to become more aware of yourself as a, as a living, breathing being? I think there are different levels of self-awareness um, and I don't mean to say that in like a in a preachy way at all I just think that there are different times in your life where you learn different things about yourself and I think there are moments where it's distilled into you know something that seems like more of a more of a moment of recognition um, you know I think the first time I had like depression hard I was in my early 20s you know and uh I didn't know what had hit me and it was bad and I just I didn't even know how to deal with it I just was despondent but then I remember inching my way out of that and then becoming aware of it and then going god I never want to be that way ever again you know that loss of self um and I wasn't really sure about the identity thing back then but I just was like oh, I never want to ever be in that state of mind ever again then it happened to me in like when I was about 27 again and I felt it creeping in and I managed to um, deal with it a bit quicker this time, probably dealt with it in about a week and a half. And um, But just being aware that that was being out of balance um, and that it was affecting me and my, um, uh, I don't know, just desire to do things. And then um, I, f- I felt it flicker in a couple of times over the past year. In particular, I mean, I think that's natural with everything that's been going on with the lockdown. I felt that flicker of just feeling a slightly different way. And at this point in my life, I'm able to. I mean, I, I say hope, you know, I th- feel thankful for this awareness and I, I hope it continues. But I, uh, you know, I've been able to recognize that feeling and go, right, at this moment in time, I need to do certain things to move away from this. And that, those will be all the things that I mentioned in the discipline chat earlier. Um, but I think it was definitely more a cut three three years ago when I had a big moment of self awareness, and as I, I mentioned to you before, I had that I had a very distressing year in particular when I was working on a on a boat, and there were personal issues, and there was the drink spiking, and the the, the trauma side of that, and then there was the you know I had a break, I, had, I got engaged and unengaged, you know, there were personal things going on that you know were highly traumatic for anybody to deal with on top of working. 100 and whatever hours every single week and getting four hours sleep a night you know for months and end without a day off you know there's, there's there's a point in your life where you're going to break and that was my point where I was like I cannot handle this and I came out of that situation like drinking excessively smoking excessively um and you know just just ignoring it all and then you know realizing that the only way to deal with that was to take myself off and deal with myself in a productive way and part of that soul searching that occurred at that time which was you know pushed and developed by the things that I was doing the yoga and the philosophy and all of those things at that particular moment I did feel like a little bit of a sorry to coin a cringy term but a bit of an awakening because there were things that I was reflecting on at that moment in time such as a sense of self you know what is permanent what is impermanent when it comes to yourself and I was looking at these philosophical questions and um about myself who 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 was I my work my life what what my values were um and you know how they affect you know boundaries values everything um and it just it just was a big moment of 
recognizing key things, triggers, etc. And, and and that's actually been ongoing. Um, you know, the, the past the, the the past couple of months have probably been a bit of another slight mild awakening for me. You know, because last year was intense. It was difficult for so many people. And 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 in those moments of all the aftermath of of a hardship, you tend to look and reflect a little bit more about why and how and behaviors and reactions and yeah I, I mean I've my colleague and I you know Elena I've mentioned her a couple of times and she I actually asked her if I could use her name so it's okay that I say her name because she's very passionate about um having these open discussions as well um we've we've both like say check in with each other daily and um we both seeing counsellors at the moment you know once a week just to check in with our mental health and there's no shame in that I used to think that if you were seeing a counsellor then you were you know batshit broken or damaged yeah yeah Yeah. but it's not it's 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 like it's just a check-in on yourself and your mental health is so connected to your over well that is your health your body and your mind your health your health your body and your mind are so connected and oiling it and wd-40ing it and all those things that you need to do like yeah it's like going to see the physio you've got to do those things a hundred percent and i resonate with your story ed because i've experienced depression at the same sort of times that you've done and threw you out in your life and again in terms of awakening like i needed help with mine so i needed to go to uh, i didn't know i needed help but I went to go see a cognitive behavioural therapist. Mm. And she was like, you're free-falling. And I was like, well, but why? She goes, well, what do you believe in? I said, I don't know. Anything that anyone else believes in. And she was like, you've got no core values. Like, you've lost yourself. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I have. But I was like, how do I find those? And she goes, well, you know what your core values are. You know it because you feel it. But you have to find them. And I was like, oh, right. And then, like, I started to like re- work on the fact that from the ground, like a proper like soul searching and building from the ground upwards. But it was like, I like honesty. I like transparency. I'm, I'm quite empathic. So I read people. And if something sets me off kilter, I learn to start trusting my gut instinct and, you know, not, not acting on it necessarily, but being aware of it's there. And all of a sudden you develop this foundation that, you know, a lot of people go through life and they've developed a strong sense of self in their school years or their colleges some people lose that throughout their life I never had it so I was doing this at the age of 30 but I I resonate completely with what you're saying and you have to find sometimes you just have to find your values and always come back to those and they're your anchor point they're your your safe space they are and I think that in terms of decision making they're how you make healthy sensible informed decisions for yourself and yeah you like you you touched on that idea of a gut instinct and, and always observing that always ch- always check in with that gut instinct because that's the the closest thing that you're going to get to um sometimes there's so much information coming in you don't know how to pick it all apart and you don't know how to make the right decision so you just go with your gut instinct but actually yeah thinking about it knowing that it's there is so important in terms of kind of helping you know the right direction to go in um i think someone recently said to me like all of your stuff up there is just bam all over the floor in pieces and your job now is to just slowly pick it all up again and i quite like that because it didn't seem again overwhelming and i thought but they said pick it all up 
in a more organized fashion and I was like yes that did that does resonate because it would be nice for it to all make a little bit more sense and have a nice order <laughs> but just that yeah. acknowledge that moment of pure chaos is something that's also quite empowering um, for a human to go okay I don't know where to begin I don't know how to start making sense of all of this craziness where do I begin and well I think the first step is acknowledging that it's all over the place but you can start to look at it bit by bit Sure, I love that. I, I went to go and watch Russell Brand once. So one of these um, during my my period of self discovery, I was going to a lot, a lot of these like inspirational talker seminars, and I went to go see Russell Brand, and he was talking about addiction. And obviously, you know, it's quite widely publicised that he was on heroin and other bits and bobs as well. Um, and he took the twelve steps and he rewrote them. And I've been sat on this for ages, and I want to publish something because I think it will resonate with hospitality. But it's basically like the first step, the first step of the 12 step program for getting over addiction is like, you know, admit to you, yourself or a higher power that you've got a problem and you need to deal with it. But he rephrased it. It was like, question one, are you a bit fucked? <laughs> like, ask yourself, are you a bit fucked? If the answer is mm-hmm. yes, then OK, that's we're on we're on the road to somewhere. And then as you mm-hmm. go through, like step four was like, you know, create an inventory about, you know, your life and you know reside yourself. But again, the powerful point about that is journaling. And it was like, if you're a bit fucked, write down what you're fucked about and, you know, address them and then tell someone else. And so it was like there was this whole inventory process about like, when I think of this, I feel like this and because. And then you start to like, you're almost doing cognitive behavioral therapy on yourself and like reworking it. But journaling, again, that's why, why we had the on journals um, created for the shop is because it's just so powerful to be able to, as you say, write down those broken pieces. Go, right, what in my life is important to me? Let's write it down. Let's mind map it. Let's, you know, let's get it out of my head onto paper and then we can start to reorganize it. You know, like you would do a walk-in fridge if you needed to, to change it around. You'd write down a new inventory and you'd put it all back bit by bit. Yeah, exactly. That's a good, that's a good industry. Re- that's a good, that's a good metaphor. Um, <laughs> no, but um, journaling, again, I get, I hadn't had a diary since I was a kid, a teenager. And when I was a teenager, it was just like, oh, fancied this boy today, saw him in the corridor, you know, really basic, <laughs> pathetic stuff. But actually, journaling as an adult is slightly different, <laughs> because all of a sudden you're going... Um, well, I think for me, it was really challenging because initially I needed to have a framework. I needed to have a question. And actually, funny enough, my journal looks a bit like that now. It's a bit like an essay. Like I put in questions and then I consider how to ask, answer them, you know, like, well, there could be any, any questions. Um, but uh, sometimes the best and most productive thing to do is like when you're when I think when you're feeling confused and you just start writing it's very intuitive the pen just goes and you don't know what you're going to write but you're just like oh today I woke up feeling very confused I'm not entirely sure why I had an underlying feeling of um, uneasiness and I can't quite put my finger on that feeling but it turns out that you know couple of days ago I had a load of wine and I'm not sure I'm I'm just giving an example but then you start to piece it all together and then there'll be one thing that you're writing down oh uh, and then you're like ah that makes sense and that's why it is yeah it is the the best way of getting something out of your mind it is almost ridiculous how it fail safe in working you find out something that you wouldn't have thought of by writing it down it's mental actually (laughs) 
Yeah, because there's a lot that goes on with your subconscious that you just don't know about. Because I, you'll you'll have we get so many, um, you know, we're exposed to so many different stimuli on a daily basis, and thoughts, and processes, and noise, and sound, and all this sort of stuff. And then we like we squirrel it away somewhere, and we'll go, oh, we'll come back to that later. And in the meantime, your brain's going, oh god, it's like a hamster running on a wheel. And so by writing it down, sometimes you actually pull out those things that are like, oh, I am feeling really anxious at the moment. It's because of the fact that we're going to relaunch soon and I don't know, you know, how my staff are going to be or, you know, I don't know what money situation is going to be like when I start spending more money because retail's open and all these sort of things. And you write them down and go, okay, so how do I deal with that? Well, I write a plan. I'm set myself a budget if I'm worried about spending or, you know, like yourself, commit to some core values so that we as a business have a direction in which we work in in terms of pillars and we can always go back to that. I, I, yeah, I, it's, it's so powerful. So powerful, but um, yeah, I could go on for a, go on for a while about that. But um, but I mean, I think there's so much useful inf- information in this conversation already. I think that I would be quite interested to know what advice you'd give to someone who is to pursue a career or you know end up where you are now as a as a business owner, you know, of of a venue and like what advice would you give to someone who's looking at starting either early on in the journey or changing the direction of their journey currently? Mm. Um, Well, if I was giving advice to a younger person, I mean, there'd be different threads of advice and they're all kind of only partially formed because I'm just at the beginning of my journey, really. But, you know, if I was giving advice to a younger person, I I would say from my own experiences that you need to learn to be patient because that's the only way that you're going to absorb it all and take it in and yeah figure out every single part of what you're doing and what it is and and just like you know just remain open and listen and 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 stuff like that you know um I wouldn't say anything about working hard because that's just a given you have to work hard no matter what you do if you want to be good at it you have to give it you know put your life and soul into it but try and try and just be educated and informed along the way and if being educated and informed is you know it's all different things. It's things like, you know, what we're talking about, and but it's other things too. Just if you can take an analytical approach to what it is you're going to do and have some, like, you know, know what goals you're working towards and look at, you know, look at it in a more holistic, look at everything in a holistic way, like your impact on the world, you know, your impact on the people around you, you know, take taking care of yourself, you know, it has an impact on the people around you. You know, if you can continue to do things that are right for the planet that we live on as well, you know, just taking that educated, informed approach to what you're doing that's, you know, you know, educate yourself along the way in every in every path that you're going to follow. Like, I've been a big believer in that, in, in this self-education, you know, like always learning, always pushing. But, yeah, patience as part of that because things take time good things take time to nurture and develop and patience is something that I've just really you know that's something that I personally work on like I'm I think in my when I went into my 30s like that wasn't something I had to struggle with but in my 20s I was highly impatient you know and I think you get a sense for that from when I told you about my career path in my 20s I wanted to see and learn and things like that and that was amazing for me because actually that ticked all the boxes for me but, you know, there are things that I'm not going to have nurtured that, you know, I probably should have done over that time. But, you know, we, we work on our strengths and weaknesses and, we you know, we figure out our weaknesses and then we spend time on them at some point. Um, but, yeah, I, I think just taking an educated viewpoint would be worthwhile. Do your research as well. 
um yeah. being a business <laughs> to become a business owner oh i don't know i'm only a brand new business owner i could be messing it all up but i just you know our core values we keep mentioning those seem to me to be the most important thing about what we're doing so understanding yourself understanding your business knowing what it is that makes people tick um having those values as your guiding principles um you know because actually you can make every decision with your values so our, our values are like things like ambition passion um kindness uh, respect um if we have those as our core values then we say oh um is this the right thing to be doing and if, if it doesn't tick all of those boxes then it's not it's not what we we not the right direction for the business or for a person in that business um that's one thing that i've learned hugely like you know even when it comes down to when it comes down to recruitment of people you know you get people of all different levels wanting to come um and be a part of your business but perhaps that person um you know perhaps that person isn't terribly respectful like perhaps that person's like not a very like polite person well that can be trained out of someone but you know if you want to cultivate these values and you want to have this workplace that's um really really positive and empowering and it's really transparent and you know it's a good place for people to be in then you have to again work hard at maintaining that space but again keeping the conversation keeping the dialogue because hopefully if you if you do what you're doing and you stick to it and you do it well then hopefully that will have an impact and that will spread out and that comes from the people so yeah yeah you're right by creating a culture that allows other people to join and become part of that culture but also at the same time if they don't fit within that culture then one one strong person can completely ruin a, a culture if they go if they're complete reverse of it so um Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very powerful point. And in terms I mean, I, of, um, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, I think the person that really instilled a good mentality in me once was this, I worked for a captain on board this boat in the Seychelles and he made it really clear when anyone joined, um, obviously we didn't have this kind of in-depth chat, but he just, well, he was a very nurturing person because he, he used to be a primary school teacher before he became a motorboat captain for the royal family. Um, but he had this really lovely, lovely manner with the crew. He was very, very, um, you know, he was very much in control. Everybody had respect for him. But why did everybody have respect for him? Not because he was like, you will respect me. I am the boss of you. It's because he encouraged this uh, this mentality whereby if you were part of the family, which is what you would be, you'd be part of this amazing family whereby we supported each other, we had each other's back, we could talk to each other about whatever we wanted to. We could also go and do the most amazing things, you know, there were most amazing perks to the job as well, you know, like snorkeling and diving, et cetera, et cetera. Those things were there and there was so much scope for those things to be developed, you know, um, and nurtured and um, and all of the values within that workplace were just flipping amazing but if you weren't willing to um, put the time in, as in, if you wanted, if you were going to put a foot out of line, then there was no space for you in that in, in that environment, in that culture. And it was like, well, if you're not going to pull your weight, you know, then you're not respecting the people around you. This is a tough industry. This is a tough job. We've all got to be in it to make it happen. But that again, sense of camaraderie that came with that, it's just that had this amazing, like, unifying um, feeling um, and force within that particular crew that I worked in and I think that's always resonated with me because I've been aware of the fact that that is 
something that yeah that is a workplace culture that is a work ethic that can be uh, created if the right infrastructure and the right people and the right um, focus is coming to light and going into that I'm very interested to uh, once we get opening again I know you're very eager and by the time this comes out we will be but uh, I'm very interested to come in and have a look at, at your your business model and have a chat with you sort of six months or a year down the line I think there'll be some quite interesting things to come off that so um if everything goes to plan when this podcast comes out you say it'll be about May time we're hoping to be releasing I say we are we're we're opening up a new wine bar this year and it's going to be part of this big um you know we're going to create this big kind of creative community hub within what within what we're doing so we have the fine dining restaurant and then the wine bar and all of um all of the food that will be coming into the kitchen for the wine bar will be um kind of divvying up between the two places so ultimately means a complete re- reduction on waste uh, we will be running um creative workshops to reduce waste moving forward and to enhance all of this creativity and um yeah the, the kind of wellness projects as part of this as well um so yeah, it should be quite interesting. And one wonderful feature that we're hoping to continue, which may or may not happen, so to be confirmed, but that's that part of lockdown and the curfew that was um, you know, put into place last year, it meant that our dinner service at Robin Wilde had to come uh, an hour earlier. So instead of 7.30, we made our dinner 6.30. And obviously it's a tasting menu, it's one sitting only. So that typically finished at about 10 o'clock. And then, um, and then that meant that basically all staff were out the doors by ten thirty. So we had this amazing thing where people in hospitality were in bed by eleven, <laughs> and <laughs> and the impact that that had on um, on 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 the people working there was amazing. And we got no complaints from our customers. So I've just got this ongoing discussion with my colleague Elena is like whether we can actually do that you know whether we can actually just say well we do dinner and we just do it at that time uh, whether we'll lose customers by doing it that way i don't know but we're really toying with that idea um anyway it's just a thought i just thought i'd you know voice it i think i i mean i've spoken to obviously the uh, the luxury of this podcast i've managed to speak to some of the industry's greatest and one thing that's come out of this is that things like that curfew has ended up actually meaning that people have made those ch- those changes and they found that it hasn't impacted their business at all. And even to the point where they've reduced the number of service days they have. So they may do like two or three lunches a week and then do four dinners. And they found that actually they are now fitting those additional people in during those time periods. They've not lost any business. They're running more profitable. The staff are happier. And ultimately, the business is a lot healthier than it ever was, be, was before. So... I think we, we're always worried too much about what the customer's going to think. But, you know, I think that sometimes you've got to try these things. And I think ultimately if the pros outweigh the cons, um, I don't know. I think, I think there's, I think go for it. <laughs> go for it. TBC. If uh, the last question I have for you, which is the, you know, the same as I ask all of my guests, but you know, if you were to give yourself one piece of advice, like travel back in time and chat to an 18-year-old version of yourself and give yourself some advice, what would that be? Oh, that whole be patient thing. <laughs> be patient. Yeah. Um, keep your wits about you. <laughs> um, uh, 
Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think possibly some of the stuff I answered in response to your last question, if I'm being honest. Um, 18 year old me, yeah, I'd just tell pipe down a little bit, probably. Um, just, yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it's interesting what, um, oh God, like, how many years ago is that? 14 years ago, 15 years ago? Oh God, I can't even work it out. Um, it's interesting how much you learn in that time, isn't it? Just about yourself and people around you. I'd probably just be saying, keep your head down, keep your eyes open, keep your wits about you, keep on learning every single thing you can, um, cut, cut the attitude, um, just, you know, be kind and respectful to everybody. Don't don't be a dick to people. It's not okay. Um yeah, I, I'd probably tell them my core values, actually. I'd just say, be ambitious, be passionate, be kind, be respectful. <laughs> um, and I think that would be some good, there'd be some good guiding principles. What would an 18-year-old version of yourself done with that information? <laughs> she probably just got pissed up down the pub, to be honest with you. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm just thinking back to my 18-year-old self. I'll be like, yeah, whatever. Okay. Onwards and upwards. (laughs) Brutal arrogance. (laughs) I know everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) And I think that's something that we all all, uh, have. It's that know-all attitude, isn't it, when you're that age? No one can tell you anything. And no wonder our parents and our peers got so frustrated with us, you know. It's when you'd speak to someone who's over the age of sort of late 40s or 50s and you know, perhaps they weren't a family member and they had a little bit more tolerance for you, but they just roll their eyes and go, you'll learn one day, you'll learn. And here we are. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? When you, when you do, um, you know, when you've taken some time to reflect and to work out like your reactions and your emotions and your actions, you know, you put these things in place uh, in terms of, you know, the, the, those buffers or those, like, mo- those moments that you have to, you know, consider something before reacting, you know, so <laughs> you're not, fi- you know, you're not firing off at people because you're going, okay, that is incredibly frustrating what's just happened. I potentially am furious. However, I am just going to take a step back and, um, and consider this before responding. That That's quite, that's quite something to, to have that, yeah, eighteen-year-old Harriet would have just been like, "Nah, bam, 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 bam," like, you know, ready to go. But yeah, thirty-four-year-old Chris is like that currently. So <laughs> I'm still learning. <laughs> oh, well, honestly. maybe you know. <laughs> Harriet, thank you ever so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I've um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And if anyone wanted to find you, uh, whether it's on social media or in location, can you just give people a sort of a heads up where you might be? Yeah. Um, Firstly, Jalo, thank you so much for having me on here. It's been an absolute honour and an absolute privilege. I've just loved the opportunity to be able to have such a candid conversation. And I think that what you're doing is absolutely phenomenal and your voice is so powerful at this particular moment. So, yeah, um, that's that's it's just really been an honour to be here. and if anybody wants to find me on social media, then Harriet Mansell is on Instagram. Harriet Mansell is, no, I'm speaking of myself in third person. Robin Wild uh, is the name of my restaurant. It's in Lyme Regis. And my new wine bar that's oh, you know, coming out this, this year will be called Lilac. 
So yeah. interesting. And the name comes from which name? Robin Wilde or Lilac? Both. I'm intrigued now. <laughs> uh, Robin Wilde, because just wanted to think of a name that wasn't my name, um, that I didn't have to necessarily attach to. So read into that what you will. Um, and it just sounds nice in English. Uh, Robin's quite a gender neutral thing, actually. When my friend said to me, oh, you know, what's your style of food? And I said, English, I guess. She said, think of something English. So I just thought of a Robin. It was quite nice. And then the wild was just a natural, very obvious nod to the foraging. And then I hated the name shortly after giving it the name, but then it just became a thing. And, you know, that that's 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 old news now. Um, and then Lilac is a highly controversial name for this wine bar because everybody I tell it to, so actually one of the first people I've told it to, FYI, and everybody uh, who hears it, they just think of an old granny's blouse and talcum powder and just this like really like light purple color. And they think, why would you call a wine bar that? But actually, we are slightly hoping to change the name in terms of people's perception of that. So there'll be no colour involved. It'll be a lot of black white space and natural materials in this wine cellar. Um, uh, the, the the actual name lilac will be in capitals. And we're, we're channeling more of a lilac haze. You know, as you just send into the wine bar, we're channeling the lilac haze, which is more of a feeling. Uh, there's that obvious reference to the, the lilac wine song depending on your kind of, you know, knowledge of that song. Some people are like, oh, we like the Elkie Brooks song. Others like the Nina Simone version. And other people like me, like the Jeff Buckley version. But it wasn't named after lilac wine. It's just that people do make wine off out of lilacs. Lilac's a nice flower, comes to flower in the spring. I don't know, there's loads. I just really like the name, actually. And people just hate it. And I love that. I don't know why. Well, anything that in, invokes emotion or passion or like anything like that is a good, good thing because it elicits a response. Good, positive or negative, it's good for business. There's no such thing as bad PR, as they say. So, <laughs> Harriet, thank you very much. I'll be sure to um, sure to pop in and say hi next time I'm down in Lime, Lime Regis. And um, yeah, thank you very much, and keep your, keep your eyes peeled for this for this episode when I when I eventually put it live. Can't wait. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> no problem at all. Have a lovely day and I'll speak to you soon. Okie dokie. You too. Bye. Cheers. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Burn Chef Journal. If you wanted to learn more about the Burn Chef Project, head over to our website, www.theburntchefproject.com where you'll find a whole host of resources and information relating to well-being and mental health within hospitality. Whilst you're there, why not visit our shop and support us by purchasing some branded merchandise, which we then use the profits to fund our ongoing work in destigmatizing mental health within the hospitality industry. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>